when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times podcast on British politics. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, and in this week's episode, we'll be looking at Brexit-related tensions in the Conservative Party, the travails of Theresa May, and the Prime Minister's visit to China. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Correspondent Jim Pickard, Political Correspondent Laura Hughes, Emerging Markets Editor James King, and Analysis Editor and former Beijing Bureau Chief Jeff Dyer. Thank you all for joining me. And if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to receive it on your phone, tablet or computer every Saturday morning. The saying goes that when the cat's away, the mice will play, and the Tory mice have certainly been playing in Theresa May's absence in China. The week began with Mrs May being urged to sack Chancellor Philip Hammond for calling for a modest Brexit in remarks he made at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Then there was the leak of a government analysis showing that the country would be worse off under all economic scenarios after Brexit. Meanwhile, the chatter grows about a possible challenge to Mrs May's leadership of the Conservative Party. If that wasn't enough, James Cleverly, the Tories' deputy chairman, opined in an interview that Nick Timothy, the Prime Minister's loquacious former chief of staff, should, and I'm modifying his words slightly, shut up. Laura, it's been quite a week. Mrs May told journalists on the plane to China that she is not a quitter. When a politician insists that he or she has no intention of quitting, it's not normally a good sign, is it? It's not. And actually, those comments that she made really infuriated a number of backbench MPs who are very clear that the Prime Minister is not going to stay once Brexit has been delivered. That is their feeling. I think there was some discord and I think some number 10 officials were trying to reassure Eurosceptic backbench MPs that it was a question put to her by journalists, not something that she wanted to put out there. That sort of language really does frustrate them and it frustrates them because they generally have huge gripes with the way that she is dealing with the negotiations and with the negotiation team. We've seen this huge leadership void which has allowed lots of different people to pile in and have their say and not everyone likes what's being said. But the question, Jim, is not whether she'll stay or go after Brexit, but whether she's going to stay or go in the next month or six weeks. Yeah, and I think to be fair to the Prime Minister, it's a bit like the question, when did you stop beating your wife? And that there is no good answer to the question of when are you Prime Minister going to quit? And in the past, she was able to just not answer the question. And I think it was a few months ago, wasn't it, that she said she wants to carry on much to the dismay of the people around her. Will she quit in the coming days or coming weeks or coming months? I mean, I think we need to keep cool heads over this one. And we saw that story in the Sun newspaper yesterday or the day before, and it was saying that a minister, an unnamed minister, a senior minister, but we all know that the word senior means nothing in political journalism, this person might quit and thus precipitate the downfall of Theresa May. Now, those of us who are long in the tooth remember that Gordon Brown ignored literally 20 ministers resigning, many of whom were in his own cabinet. And we remember that Jeremy Corbyn ignored 65 (laughs) members of his front bench resigning. And therefore, we all know that 
even one or two people quitting is not enough on its own to do it. Um, the danger is whether or not there is that specific number of um, names handed to the 22 committee. Is it, is it 48, Laura? Yeah, you, the, the party would need 48 Tory MPs to have handed in a letter saying, you know, we have no confidence in the Prime Minister. But the interesting point with that is that those letters stay in this cabinet, in this room, for a very long time. And actually, if it reached that level of 48, it's apparently on 45, 46. Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee, would have to go back to all those letter writers and say, do you still want to have this letter in the pile? And my feeling is very much that a lot of them wouldn't if that number is so great. Nobody really, I truly don't think, believes it's the best thing for Brexit or the government or the Conservative Party for Theresa May to step down over the next few months. And I, I spoke to a reasonably prominent rebel just a couple of days ago who who seemed a bit kind of worried that they might almost accidentally tip to that 48 number, just sort of almost by mistake. And they're a real ragbag of people with a really diffuse set of grievances against Theresa May. And you've got people in there right on the Eurofile wing of the party and right on the hard Brexit wing. So they aren't people who are going to agree on a successor very easily. And, and she's sort of kept in suspension by all the various contra forces within the party isn't it yeah she sort of holds it all together because if there was some sort of leadership election you'd have the party completely split just as the cabinet is completely split and that would just be so detrimental for both brexit and i say for the government but i also think theresa may won't go because she does have this almost christian sense of duty and i think she feels it's very much her duty to stay in place and deliver brexit have eggs thrown at her you know from all directions but she will take it because that is what she believes she must do it's a very gordon brown parallel i mean people have talked about the Gordon Brown Theresa May similarities before, and you remember Brown, the son of the Manse, and May is the daughter of a preacher priest, of some sort. Yeah. It was a priest, and you can see that okay. just that sense of duty and sort of slogging on, even while all around you are wondering whether you've you've got the talents required. Let's let's turn to Brexit, Laurie. You mentioned that the cabinet is split down the middle, if not three or four ways, on what sort of Brexit um, the government is going to deliver or is going to try to negotiate with the EU27. We've seen this week government ministers trashing the government's own economic uh, analysis and forecasts. And Steve Baker, the Brexit minister, launched an attack on civil servants who he claimed were deliberately trying to influence policy in favour of staying in the EU. How has Mr Baker's uh, remarks, how have they gone down with his cabinet colleagues? I imagine not very well. I don't know if you saw the clip when Steve Baker yesterday repeated a, a false accusation from Jacob Rees-Mogg that it had been suggested by um, a senior leader of a think tank that civil servants were deliberately skewing and fudging the figures to make it look like remaining in the customs union was the only good option for the economy. Steve Baker, I think, hasn't had a very good week. He does speak for a lot of Eurosceptic MPs, but sometimes he speaks as if he is still a backbench MP giving an off-record comment to a journalist, not a minister representing government at the dispatch box. And I think there was a visible wince from David Davis, the Brexit secretary, when Mr Baker made that remark, Jim. Indeed. Um, just to go back a step, though, I wanted to pick up something you said in your introductory remarks when you said that under all the Treasury scenarios, Britain would be worse off. It's important to say that we would be relatively worse off, but we would still be more prosperous than we are today. So just, just to make that one clear. Um, I mean, the, but it was a very good scoop for BuzzFeed to get. 
it has caused some quite predictable reactions, I would say, which is that on the solidly remain side, people are saying, well, this just proves what we've said all along, which is that the whole enterprise is going to be a disaster. But there are a lot of people who would agree with the Steve Baker interpretation, which is that they are just forecasts, economic forecasts, tend to be a little bit flaky. Um, You show me the government uh, economic forecast that suggested that things were going to go down the pan after 2008, and I can promise you they don't exist. So I don't think it's going to be changing many minds in the dog and duck uh, out there in the real world, and yet it it has been politically quite spectacular this week. Also, I think the reason it's been so politically sensitive is this war we've seen between ministers and the civil service and there is a real genuine feeling that a lot of civil servants are pro-EU, London-based, totally anti-Brexit and therefore everything they do will be skewed in a slight way and that is something that backbench Tory MPs really do feel. And just to give you a sense of of the kind of circular firing squad that was happening in Whitehall on Tuesday, I mean, it was quite incredible how no one would take ownership for these slightly doomy forecasts and I had a tip-off in the afternoon that um, people in the Cabinet Office were very unhappy and they thought that maybe Steve Baker potentially had misled Parliament when he seemed to suggest that this had been nothing to do with with Dexu. Um, They were saying it certainly hadn't originated from the Cabinet Office. And then people close to Dexu were sort of telling me in corners that actually it's a little bit more complicated and there might be some sort of treasury fingerprints on this if one was to look in certain places. And yes, it did transpire that the treasury were quite involved with this whole workflow going back to before Christmas. And then, you know, more ramifications. People came back and said, ah, but if you look at August when the whole process began of of collating and deciding we we're going to do this process and making these impact assessments, Philip Rycroft, who was then the Deputy Permanent Secretary at Dexu, chaired that particular meeting. So I just sort of ended the day not knowing um, who to believe, where this had all begun, but concluding very much that they were all a bit embarrassed by this and no one wanted ownership. And this kind of... Uh, chaos i mean i think i think that's the uh, that's the right word here i mean it leaves the eu 27 scratching their heads doesn't it? i mean they re- um, brussels and the other uh, eu capitals they regularly complain that they don't know what britain wants out of the the brexit negotiations and it's true that mrs may was particularly sphinx like in a interview with the BBC on Friday when she was pressed on the outcome she desired. We also learned on Friday in an FT story that government advisers are secretly considering whether Britain could strike a customs union deal covering trading goods with the EU. Laura, what's the balance of opinion in the Cabinet on that? I mean, for example, Liam Fox on Thursday was urging the Prime Minister not to commit to membership of customs union. No, but we know that the likely suspects, Philip Hammond, Greg Clark, are actually very supportive of this idea of a kind of a customs union. Um, but perhaps the more sort of Liam Foxy type characters in the cabinet are not going to be supportive of this and backbench Eurosceptics will not be supportive of this. And it is just incredibly confusing both for officials in Brussels, but actually there's some confusion amongst backbench MPs. They don't really know what they're trying to achieve. There are all these talks about, you know, we're going into negotiations over transition. And a lot of them are saying, but we don't know what we're transitioning into. How can you negotiate transition when we don't know what the end state is? And I actually don't think anyone at this point does know what the end state is. And it's not being clearly defined. And if you were just a normal member of the public and not in the bubble, I think you'd be terribly confused. Exactly. The On the sphinx-like nature of Theresa May's position on Brexit, there was that great story about how Angela Merkel had told the German press that whenever she spoke to Theresa May about what she wanted, she, she would turn around and say, make me an offer, which only washes so long. And unsurprisingly, George Parker's scoop about 
May's people still considering staying in the customs union has made big waves overnight. There'll be loads of Tory MPs who absolutely hate it. And Liam Fox has commented directly on that in a way that some people have interpreted as him saying this isn't going to happen. If you actually look at the words he said, he's basically said that, well, doing this wouldn't be consistent with us being able to strike trade deals well, duh, we, we all know that. Um, we all know that already. So, And Theresa May's comment as well, she neither confirmed our story nor denied it. So it just goes to show that a lot of this stuff is still up in the air. And as Laura says, we need to work it out by the spring. And spring is starting to sprung. <laughs> but, you know, lobby briefings this week have been almost farcical. We just sit there for 20 minutes going round and round and round. But has the Prime Minister ruled out staying customs union? What about a different... And there's no answer. And number 10 are very careful. And all they'll say is... Well, to, to really answer that would be to discuss our negotiating position and we're not going to do that, are we, to journalists? And the language is really important that politicians are using and the phrasing and how they can sort of, you know, if they are seen to go back on their word, I imagine they're all being very careful about exactly what they're saying. And meanwhile, the only person who seems to be taking any responsibility in resigning is this guy, Lord Bates, who none of us had ever heard of, whose resignation was nothing to do with Brexit and wasn't even accepted. <laughs> that was another just bizarre moment this week where a peer in the House of Lords, a minister, a government minister, was a little bit late at the dispatch box to answer a question from a Labour peer and subsequently resigned on the spot, walked out to cries of no from peers and the Labour opposition leader saying, really, that's a bit dramatic. And of course, the Prime Minister rejected his resignation, she thought it was a little bit over the top. Laura, you mentioned earlier uh, transition. There's a battle looming on the rights of EU citizens during the transition phase, isn't there? This was another fun (laughs) discussion at lobby because this again is super confusing. There's been a, a toughening of stance from Theresa May, probably in response to some, you know, upset, angry backbench MPs who are giving her more than a, a headache. And she's saying that there is going to be a difference in the rights that EU citizens have during transition and after. And the question I was asking in lobby, which of course I didn't get an answer to, is that the government have been very clear the rights of EU citizens and UK citizens will be reciprocal. So if we're saying that there will be a difference in the rights of EU citizens post-transition, we're then also saying that there'll be a difference in rights for UK citizens living in Europe post-transition. So if you were a couple living in Spain or planning on retiring during transition, you might not have the same right to remain after. And only a few weeks ago, the EU was saying that their negotiating position was very strongly that during the transition, the current system would continue in terms of of citizens' rights. So, I mean, I I took the view that this could be potentially a massive row. Um, Our colleague Alex Barker, the Brussels editor, thinks that actually when it comes down to it, Brussels might be more flexible than they sounded a few weeks ago. So perhaps it may not be a massive um, battle, but at the moment it has the potential to be still. Actually, it was a huge issue, but we suddenly found ourselves writing about other issues. Let's finish this segment of the discussion with a word about the opposition. There was a rumour this week that Labour is about to uh, have an away day (laughs) (laughs) to discuss its position on Brexit. Is there any sign, Jim, that Labour is about to ditch its strategy of constructive ambiguity on Brexit? Okay, so there there are signs of plenty. And yes, it was an Observer story last Sunday saying that they were going to have an away day. And it's a kind of Brexit subcommittee um, that consists of all the key players, Emily Thornbury, Diane Abbott, McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the representatives of Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. John Trickett's in there as well from the Cabinet Office. And I had a coffee with someone in the Shadow Cabinet this week who said to me, it's not a day 
and we're not going away and the, <laughs> and the date hasn't been set yet but apart from that yeah there is there is going to be a fairly big meeting about this um if you talk to certain people on the eurofile wing of the party they are convinced Keir Starmer who is probably the most influential eurofile in the shadow cabinet will successfully push his colleagues onto a position of accepting we should stay in the customs union and it does sound like that's what Keir's going to push for. But you still have plenty of people on this subcommittee. So Barry Gardner, I forgot to mention him. He's the Shadow Trade Secretary. He's adamant that it won't happen. A couple of others are sceptical as well. So my guess is as good as yours as to whether all this hype we've been hearing about another key change. Um, wait and see. But I mean, what, what we do know is that should the government preempt it by admitting uh, George's story that yes, Britain will probably stay in a customs union, then that would have to bounce Labour into it. But we'll, we'll see. I think it will be in February sometime. Laura, Jim, thank you very much. Theresa May visited China this week amid claims that the golden era in Anglo-Chinese relations is over. James, is the golden era over or was it never quite as golden in the first place as we thought? Uh, well, I think what we can see from this trip is that possibly the golden era has now been somewhat downgraded perhaps to a bronze era. We can see this in many different ways, actually. A, a lot of it comes in the mood music. Um, l- let's not forget the golden era was launched in 2015 when Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, came over to the UK. I'm sure many people will remember that visit. Uh, Xi rode in a golden carriage to uh, to Buckingham Palace. Uh, he shared a pint with uh, David Cameron in in a, in a pub in the Chilterns. Uh, you know, no, uh, about thirty billion uh, pounds in bilateral deals were signed. Virtually no stone was left unturned um, in the quest to give a sense that this was a really the start of something big and something new. By contrast, um, in this visit in Beijing, Theresa May gave a ten-minute speech. It wasn't really a big uh, foreign policy speech. She didn't have a pint with Xi Jinping but she did have a rather minute cup of Chinese tea with him. And the Chinese uh, CCTV, the official uh, TV station, called her Auntie May. So um, it it certainly wasn't a disaster as far as the mood music is concerned, but it wasn't anywhere near the level of the way in, in which Xi Jinping was entertained when he came over here. And in more substantive areas, much more important areas, there was a sense that Theresa May was slightly pushing back towards China. One of the most significant things that didn't happen in the trip was that the UK declined to sign a written memorandum of understanding through which they would have endorsed Xi Jinping's pet project, which is called the Belt and Road Initiative. The Chinese have been campaigning behind the scenes for a number of weeks, quite strenuously, to get the UK to sign this thing, but they didn't. So I think we can see that Theresa May really refused to play the role of the supplicant when she went to Beijing. But as I said, you know, that may have disappointed China. But uh, the visit, the mood music around the visit certainly wasn't a disaster. Jeff, um, presumably Britain is quite a way down the Chinese agenda where global trade is concerned. Policymakers in Beijing are more concerned with relations with the US, particularly after Donald Trump's remarks at Davos last week. That, that's definitely true, but I think they would see an opportunity in Britain, in a country that under David Cameron at least had seemed so favourable to having a much better relationship with China. And if they could have got the British to sign up to the Belt and Road Initiative, as James is describing, that would make it much easier than to press other developed countries to sign up to as well, the European countries 
countries and even the US. So there was a potentially big gain for the Chinese there. But I think, you know, the British and then Theresa May did push back against the Chinese on this trip, and that is quite hard to do for her, but given just how fantastically beleaguered she is in British domestic politics at the moment. But just so for a number of, of practical reasons, a number of more broader geopolitical reasons. I mean, practically, if you do sign up to this initiative, there are big questions about environmental process around some of these projects, about the workers' rights and around some of these projects, about the financing and debt burdens that are being placed on countries under some of these projects. So lots of practical questions about the Belt and Road Initiative that the British government might want to be quite careful about. But more broadly, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is the main part of Chinese foreign policy where the ultimate goal is not to tear apart the US-led global order, but it is to supplant it in important ways. And And given that Britain is so much more culturally and intellectually, foreign policy-wise, closer to the US, that is something a British government would have to be very, very careful about taking part in and being seen to be a major driver of. James, how would you assess the putative benefits that would accrue to Britain from making the kind of commitments on the Belt and Road Initiative that Beijing seems to want to extract? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, so the recent history is that in 2015, when Xi Jinping came to the UK, about 30 uh, 30 billion pounds in deals were announced. But um, when we look in sort of more forensic detail about how many of those deals actually came through, what we are beginning to discover is that uh, a minority have actually stuck. Uh, Some of the real estate deals in London have stuck, but significantly quite a lot of what was promised in the so-called Northern Powerhouse, so that's uh, cities like Sheffield and Manchester, Liverpool, um, which some of which were huge promises made by Chinese companies, investing billions of pounds. Um, some of them have just not happened. Um, some of them have started to happen and then petered out. Some of them have just just appear to have vanished into thin air. And I think this is most certainly one of the reservations that the British side is beginning to have towards their relationship with China. The big thing that created the 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 the, the ground for the golden era was the UK's uh, decision to sign up to membership in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank which was a new investment bank being launched by Beijing none of the western powers uh, had agreed to sign up and join it before the UK did the UK did so at the cost of really quite annoying the White House at the time. But it was on that basis that the Chinese thought, OK, let's launch the golden era. But now it seems, um, and I think many in policy circles in the UK are thinking, that, you know, what kind of a payback did the UK get from its decision to annoy its greatest ally, the US, by joining the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? And so it's these projects on the ground that people are really scrutinising. And the flip side of that is that Britain's comparative advantages, Britain's um, you know, best industries and finance and services are precisely the bit of the Chinese economy that is the most closed and is not going to open up anytime soon because they are especially financial services and banking is key to the Chinese Communist Party's control of the economy. So there is very little in practical terms, in the short term at least, that the Chinese can offer the British in terms of you know, carrots and incentives to get more involved in the, in the Chinese economy. It's just realistically, it's just not going to happen. Jeff, before her trip to Beijing, Mrs May wrote an op-ed for the the FT in which she said that global trade depends on countries playing by the rules. Do you think Beijing will have seen an implied rebuke in those words? I suspect Beijing and Washington will both have seen an implied rebuke in these words. 
But I think you know, the big issue for the Western countries is it's slightly less trade and is more ability to invest in the Chinese economy. I mean, China's now the second largest economy in the world, will in a number of years be the, the biggest economy in the world. Yet there are whole swathes of the economy that are blocked off to Western companies in a way that's not the case for Chinese companies to do in our economies. That is the big sort of looming issue in global economic governance. In a different world, you would have a United States administration that was leading, that was able to bring together the US, the Europeans, the British, the Japanese, the South Koreans, who are all up in arms about this issue and are really keen to push back and try and work in a coordinated way to, to, to push Beijing on this. The Trump administration sees things slightly differently. It's much more obsessed about the bilateral trade deficit. And so you're not actually getting that coordinated pushback against the Chinese, which leaves the British in a slightly difficult position because this is an issue they would love to make a, a stand on, but there is no leadership from the US on it. James, as, as Jeff has just said, Mrs May then finds herself in a difficult position, caught on the one side between uh, a US which is apparently losing interest in the global rules-based order, and on the other with China, which is trying to rewrite those rules. Absolutely, and that's really just the, where the, her problems start, because uh, the other big thing obviously happening is Brexit. And, uh, you know, whereas the UK would be able in the past to coordinate its policies towards China with the EU, uh, that level of discipline now has, uh, well, is, is kind of petering out along alongside Brexit. So the UK finds itself in in a rather well unusual position of being alone and and therefore it is really critically important how uh, Theresa May charts the next few years of China policy. One encouraging thing I think is this uh, dialogue which she has heralded so so much in Beijing. It's a, it's a dialogue on trade and investment with the Chinese side. It's supposed to be a regular thing. The US has one of these and by all accounts it's, it's helped the US really try to get its ducks in a row and if the Chinese really invest time and effort into the dialogue, then I think there is some hope that uh, British businesses will be able to gain meaningful deals, you know, deals that actually stick rather than vague professions of things that might happen. I mean, just to go back onto the, onto the deal topic, according to Downing Street, British companies have signed about £9 billion pounds in deals this time uh, while Mrs. May has been in Beijing. But but really, we've got no details on any of these. And some of the scant details that are coming through show very vague promises uh, for the future of various funds who might invest, possibly if things go okay in China and in the UK. It doesn't, to me anyway, jive with my definition of a deal. Mrs. May is not the first Western leader to visit China this year. In early January, French President Emmanuel Macron was there. James, you, you talk regularly to senior people in Beijing and you monitor the media very closely. How did Mrs. May's visit go down compared to Mr. Macron's? We understand from Chinese sources that Macron's visit was seen as particularly antagonizing to China. First of all, he criticized the Chinese for apparently not living up to promises of two-way benefits along the Belt and Road Initiative. He gave the Chinese a slight history lesson about how the Silk Road had acted in the past and had always been a, a kind of a two-way thing. Giving Chinese history lessons on anything is never a very good idea if you're trying to achieve diplomatic ends. And then and then we hear somehow that within meetings between Xi Jinping and Macron, there were things that were said that were not pleasing to Xi Jinping. So we heard 
that this visit really didn't give the the Chinese a, a positive sense of future relations with France. So, from this perspective, at least, I think the May visit may have been slightly more successful. At least it was fairly real. At least the British went in there; they didn't sign up to everything the Chinese wanted. And yet, as I mentioned at the beginning, the mood music appears to have been fairly positive. Jeff, Mrs. May was apparently christened Auntie May in Chinese media. She was, and you know, watching the visit from the UK. I mean, the the striking thing is just how beleaguered she is. I mean, she. Uh, on this foreign trip, and she spent most of her time answering questions about you know, backbiting, cabinet splits, arguments over Brexit, uh, and just you know she cannot get away from the kind of core questions about what is Britain's relationship going to be with the European Union going forward. I mean, she did seem like a very, very weakened, beleaguered figure during her trip in China. James, Jeff, thank you. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much, to Jim, Laura, James, and Jeff for joining me. If you'd like to hear more about where the Brexit negotiations are heading, don't forget to look out for our Brexit Unspun podcast, which is available on all the usual podcast apps. And thank you to Yanina Conboy for producing. Until the next time, thank you very much for joining us. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.